We'll begin a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world used by many of the great thinkers, activists, organizers, and revolutionaries in modern history. Today, we'll discuss what a monopoly is and how there is a natural tendency toward monopoly under capitalism. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support. If you're not a patron yet, please become one. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's r-d-w-o-l-f-f.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you very much, Brian. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining. We want to talk about the issue of monopoly. You know, capitalism is touted, even when you look at government documents now, the U.S. foreign policy actually codifies the free market or free market principles. I don't know what the principles are in a market, but the U.S. foreign policy establishment for the last 30 years has said the U.S. promotes free market principles. The idea of monopoly would, in a way, be the opposite of a free market. And perhaps capitalism has both a free market implying competition and also the trend towards monopoly. Let's talk about this tendency. I mean, obviously, it developed with sort of galloping speed after, not before, Marx wrote his epic Capital, Das Kapital. I mean, there were elements of monopoly that existed prior to that, that Marx also analyzed. But as a dominant tendency within capitalism, monopoly wasn't dominant, but is today. Let's just talk about this trend. Yes, I'd be glad to. Marx was writing in the middle of the 19th century when you could, in fact, begin to see in particular situations, markets of this or that kind, a process, a tendency, and Marx referred to it indeed as a tendency, for the capitalist system to move from a situation where there are many buyers and many sellers, a market that has lots of competitors on all sides. And the reason this is important is that it meant that each seller, each capitalist employer hiring workers and producing something for sale 
would have to sell it at the lowest possible price because if he didn't, one of his many competitors would, and nobody in their right mind would go buy something at a higher price that they could get from a next-door neighbor competitor for a lower price, and that this would impose a discipline on the market, guaranteeing consumers the lowest possible price because of the competition among the sellers. And likewise, with everybody being only a small fish in the capitalist pond, that being many companies producing something, it would be relatively easy for anyone who wanted to start a business to do so because they wouldn't be facing a monster competitor against whom it would be hopeless to try to compete. And really, that's all free market ever meant, that we would be free to have the lowest possible price for everything we buy and free for people to enter any line of business and become another one of the producers. But this story was out of date almost as fast as it was concocted or written. And Marx, having some fun, by the way, when he explains this, because it was a chance for him to apply Hegel's philosophy that he had learned as a student, he pointed out, tongue-in-cheek, but very serious at the same time, that the competition that capitalism celebrates the way that capitalism tells to the people to this day, look, we're efficient. We're bringing you all of these wonderful consumer goods at the lowest possible price, that this was silly because the very process of competition eliminates itself. This was an idea of Hegel's, the contradictoriness of everything, that everything that grows is also dying, that everything that develops also undevelops. And here's how it works in competition. When you have many small producers producing something, uh, soda pop or software programs or shirts or chairs or whatever you want, they compete with one another. Each one tries to produce a better quality of this product and or at a lower price. Why? Because that's how you win the competition. If you can produce a better quality, especially if you can do it at the same or a lower price, you will bring the customer to you and you will take the customer away from your competitor. Indeed, the risk that any one competitor does it forces all the other companies, all the other enterprises to be just as rigorous in looking for a way to improve their quality or lower their price. It's a kind of deadly game competition. You either win by being the first one to get better quality or a lower price or you lose because someone else does it, and all the customers leave you and go to that someone else. So you can think of competition as the kind of regulator, as the kind of discipline that makes a market work in this notion of free capitalism or free enterprise or free markets. 
and here comes Marx's joke. Capitalism celebrates competition, but competition destroys itself. Why? Because in competition, some firms win and other firms lose. So again, with my example, the company that makes the better quality at a lower price destroys the other companies because all the customers go to the company that makes the better quality at the lower price, driving the other capitalists out of business. And now here comes Marx to explain it to us. When the successful company comes up with a new invention or the new style or the new quality or the new more efficient production procedure and gets a better quality at a lower price, it steals the market. It controls the market. It brings the customer to it. The other businesses lose their customers and they collapse. They can't sell their goods. Therefore, they can't recoup the money. Therefore, they can't pay their workers. Therefore, they go belly up, bankrupt. They're done. And now the interesting part starts. What happens to the equipment that was used by the company that was competed out of existence. Well, it's useless. They can't make a living doing that because all their customers have gone over to the innovator. So they sell their equipment on the secondhand equipment market. But of course, who buys it? Answer, the innovating capitalist, the innovating competitor, because his market is booming. Everybody's coming to him. He needs to have more equipment to produce more. And ditto, what happens to the workers in the company that goes belly up, that can't compete? They become unemployed. Where are they going to go? Answer, they're going to go and ask for a job at the business of the successful, the innovating capitalist, the one who made a better quality and or at a lower price. So here's the punchline. Competition is a process where the winners eat the losers. The winners absorb those who they defeat in the competition. And thereby, the many enterprises become fewer and fewer and fewer until there are only a handful left. There's a word in economics for when you only have, you know, three or four or five companies left where once there were a hundred or 50 or 20. It's called oligopoly. But if it keeps going, if the oligopoly companies, the four or five left, continue to compete with one another, well, eventually, one of them will absorb all the rest. And that one is called a monopoly. Mono, the word for one. And so this is the process that capitalism everywhere displays. If you go back, for example, to the beginning of the automobile industry here in the United States, we had 50 companies making cars. Then over a period of 30, 40 years, we had three, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. That was it. If you look at how we started in the cigarette business, same thing. Many became few. In the computer business, many became few. 
in the oil business. Many, be- I mean, it's boringly obvious that capitalism has built into itself the self-destruction of competition. It's a process that ends itself, leaving you with a very small number, oligopoly, or just one producer who's literally absorbed all of the others. Now, let me explain how Marx plays with this a little bit. He points out, as have others since then, that when you only have a few, the oligopoly, three or four, like automobiles, Ford, General Motors, Chrysler, before the situation I'll talk about a little bit later happened, when you have only a few left, they all know how they ended up being a few by that so-called ruthless competition whereby the many became the few. So they get together the few and they say, hey, let's not continue this game because most of us then are going to disappear because we know exactly how that works because we made all the others disappear. So how about we make a deal? We don't do that to one another. We get together in a fancy restaurant and we agree we'll all make more or less the same quality and we'll charge the same price. We won't compete against one another and therefore we'll have a nice deal. We'll divide the huge market among the three or four of us and we'll have a very nice situation. And we can jack the price up way beyond what it otherwise would have been, way beyond our costs, because we've ruined everybody else. Nobody can go to our competitors because we don't have any. We've absorbed them. There's only three or four of us left. So we can get a big, fat, rich market divided up amongst the three of us, and we will make more money than any other capitalist. And for example, that's exactly what happened in the auto business and in all the other businesses. And so Marx enjoys teaching that capitalism celebrates competition and hopes that nobody notices that the very competition that capitalists celebrate is a self-negating process. It is something that destroys itself over time, leaving a few oligopoly or just one left. And it happens in industry after industry. Last point. Marx is so taken with his teacher Hegel's notion of contradiction that he adds a brilliant point that many others still haven't understood that the very success of the monopoly ends up self-negating itself. In other words, just like competition destroys itself and produces monopoly, in the end, monopoly does that too. And he explains it. When you only have a few, or when you really only have one, and they jack up the price because they've got the market, There are no other competitors. They can charge what they want because there's nowhere else for you to go. The way we all understand many of the things we face now, the profits that they can get are so high, which is, of course, why they do what they do, get together and set the price. The profits are so high that more and more 
other capitalists seeing the high prices begin to become more and more interested in figuring out some way to get back into that business to take advantage of the super high monopoly profits. Oh, let me use the automobile industry to finish the story. The profits earned by Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler, pretty much the whole period after World War II, as they consolidated their oligopolistic control of the exploding automobile market in the United States, they set prices so high, they made such enormous profits that around the world, but particularly in the countries most damaged by World War II, Germany and Japan, as the capitalists there decided what are we going to try to focus on to rebuild our war-torn economies? And what they settled on was automobiles. Why? Because they like cars? Of course not. Because they could see that the maximum profit being earned in the number one capitalist country after World War II was the automobile industry in the United States. So that became their model and that became their target. They set themselves a goal to rebuild the war-torn German and Japanese economies by producing better cars at a lower price. And they knew they would have a hard time because the Americans were way ahead of them so they mobilized their governments, the German and the Japanese governments, to give them maximum subsidies, support, help on the table, under the table. And they did it. They did it. They produced the Volkswagen. They produced the Mercedes. They produced the Toyota. They produced the Nissan. We all know the names because they did it. And they brought competition back. The monopoly operated by General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler destroyed itself by building a level of profit that brought in the new competition of the Europeans, the Japanese, and as you're going to see in the years ahead, that now the Chinese are building the cars, the Indians are building the cars, the Brazilians are building the cars, and the monopoly will go back to a period of competition. And then what, friends? The same thing will start again. The competition will destroy itself, go to a monopoly, and then the monopoly will destroy itself. It is the self-mechanisms of capitalism. And the only sad reality is that so many businesses go belly up, destroying the capitalists involved, really shaking the lives of the workers who are often unemployed as they go down with the losing industries before they can get a new job in the 
monopolized or oligopolized industries. And of course, we, the general public, have to pay way higher prices for years and years during which this monopoly consolidates itself and before it destroys itself when we get back to competition. So it's literally a crazy inefficient way to organize things, but it's how capitalism works. And it should be kept in mind every time anyone tries to sell you on the idea that capitalism is some sort of efficient mechanism. It never was. It isn't now. It's in fact a mechanism full of the kinds of self-destructive and socially costly phenomena as is this passage from competition to monopoly and back to competition. When you think of Amazon, for instance, Amazon started as a bookstore in 1994. The company, Jeff Bezos' company, decided that they wouldn't try to make profit, that they would only try to undersell the competition by providing a service, especially online retail, at a lower cost. You could click a button on your computer Two days later, the product would arrive. You wouldn't have to go to the mall or the store. Uh, If you didn't like the product, you could send it back with a refund. You had a certain sense of guarantee. And Amazon just had to run basically a website and warehouses, no brick and mortar retail. The result was people used Amazon more and more. And then in the last year, even more so, Toys R Us, gone. Sears, gone. J. Crew, gone. Borders Bookstore, gone. And really, you could probably make a list of about 100 retail stores gone. Again, all because Jeff Bezos created a business model which undersold the competition. And maybe it's not a complete retail monopoly, but it controls about 50% of the retail market in the United States. Amazon is also, it's a centralized planned economy under the dictatorship of Jeff Bezos. It solved some of the problems of earlier socialist models that couldn't quite match demand with production. And that was for a number of complicated reasons, many of which were connected to the very dangerous and unfavorable international environment that forced those countries to divert large amounts of money to heavy industry for weapons production. But that aside... Amazon created a business model that by having complete full spectrum surveillance over all of our desires, they know what we want even before we know what we want. And they put it on our screen in our computer when we go to their website because they've already been able to determine how many times we've clicked on this or that product. How long did we stay on a particular product? Even the products we don't buy, the ones that we put back on the shelf, all of that data is collected. So they're In a way, they're taking out of the equation the uncertainty about demand, the uncertainty that exists in any so-called market where you don't really know when you bring your product to market whether it will sell. Amazon pretty much knows it. But as a consequence, we have the destruction of so many businesses and the destruction of so many hundreds of thousands of jobs, and Amazon stands atop the heap. When you think about the trend for monopoly, in other words, our listeners can understand this process because it's something that they have experienced. The 50 auto companies turning into three, that happened some time ago. 
But in almost every area of economic life, whether it's retail or the biggest banks, this trend is clearly not only discernible, but dominant. Yeah, and I think let's drive home the, the lesson here. The whole purpose of this is because the oligopolists and the monopolists know that as soon as they get rid of the vast bulk of their competitors by driving them out of business, as soon as there aren't competitors, the discipline of competition is over. And now they can jack up the price because the customer can't go anywhere else because there is no anybody else. They've all been driven out of business. So the competitors... Their goal is to rip us off, to raise the price way above what it actually costs to produce the item, something they couldn't do when there was competition because there would be the competitor who would grab the market, who would get the consumer. But once they've gotten rid of the competitor, well, then they can do what the whole system drives them to do, which is rip off everybody who to whom they sell by jacking up the price, which is what they do. And then they work very hard with the enormous profits they make to hold on to their monopoly. Let me give you a couple of ideas about how this works. In many cases, they spend a fortune, which they can afford because they are jacking their prices up and earning these wild profits more than anybody else in the economy, they can use it to develop the idea in the public that what they produce is absolutely unique. Here the example I'll give you is from uh, Soda Pop. Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola spend a fortune of money because they were able to jack up the price of soda. Let's remember, soda is water, color, and sugar, or a sugar substitute. It costs nothing. We are charged an enormously higher price than anything remotely connected to the cost of producing the sugar water. That money, that enormous profit, is used to make sure that wherever you turn, you see advertisements for Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola. Why? Because you are taught to associate good times, fun times, good friends, whatever positive association they can come up with in the ads you cannot escape, so that in effect you think you're getting something special, even though what's in the can of Coca-Cola is exactly the same as what's in the can of anybody else who produces these things. Those other people cannot sell at the price of Coca-Cola because they don't have the money to do the advertising. So they will sell you, you know, store brand soda, and it'll be much, much cheaper because they have to sell it at the cost. But the monopolist can continue to charge wild amounts of money and sell at that wildly inflated price because they have made the world think that Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola are in fact something different, something better, something, something, somehow worth the crazy money that they spend. So 
the minute you get a monopoly, not only do you rip everybody off, but you use the extra profits your monopoly got you to hold on to the monopoly. For example, to give donations to government officials so that even if there are laws on the books outlawing monopoly, and we have those in this country, they're not enforced, they're not applied. People look the other way in the government, which is why we have monopolies, despite the fact that there are laws that forbid them. In other words, monopoly destroys other businesses, throws large numbers of people out of work along the way, then overcharges everybody for as many years or decades as they can use their fat profits to hold on to their monopoly position. In the end, it will disappear. I can tell you right now that in Europe, in Japan, and above all in the People's Republic of China, competitors to Amazon are sharpening their capacity to offer us better choices, faster deliveries, etc. Amazon's monopoly, like every other monopoly in history, is limited in how long it will last. And Jeffrey Bezos knows it as well as everyone else, which is why he grabs as much as he can now, even in the middle of a pandemic, when it doesn't look good for a billionaire to become richer. He knows he has to grab it quick before the monopoly self-destructs. Finally, Richard, let's talk about the international or global implications because we have the global implication of the competition between firms or corporations or corporations that are moving in the direction of concentration of production and thus monopoly. They're still competing with each other, and that gives international relationships a, a venomous quality. Of course, the U.S. having integrated China into the world economy, thinking that China would be satisfied with just being you know, the, the assembly sort of wing of the global market, just manufacturing, you know, at the lowest level of the manufacturing chain. The U.S. did not anticipate that China would demand as a kind of quid pro quo in the relationship with Western corporations that, yes, they could come and yes, they could pay Chinese workers low wages. And yes, they could have access to this market where one out of every four humans lives. Yes, they could do that. But in exchange, the U.S. corporations would have to train the Chinese, share the technology, partner with the Chinese companies. And as a consequence, China grew strong and it developed. And its development created another contradiction, to use the Hegelian framework, where while integrated by the U.S. into the world economies to maximize the profits of Western corporations and U.S. ones in particular, China turned into a formidable competitor. And now, the U.S. is launching what essentially amounts to a, a new Cold War. The CFO, the chief financial officer of Huawei, a very successful Chinese technology company, arrested when she got off a plane in Canada, still facing trial. This global confrontation where national security, I think, becomes a pretext for the U.S. worried that the Chinese are just going to have the upper hand economically with newer technologies. 
So there's that element of the international competition, which is venomous, as I said, and could lead, in fact, to global conflict. And then there's the other part of the same phenomena that you're discussing, which is how these big corporations, monopoly corporations or biggest banks impact what we used to call the third world or the developing world. I went to Chiapas in January 1994 when the Zapatista uprising happened, and NAFTA had just been signed on January 1st. And the Zapatista said, look, NAFTA, for whatever else it creates, is going to be a death sentence for indigenous Indian corn-growing farmers in the southern part of Mexico because it allowed Mexico conceded that Midwestern agribusiness companies could come in and sell corn in Chiapas and they would undersell the corn growers. And they, in fact, did just that. They undersold them. Those indigenous farmers went out of business. Hundreds of thousands or millions of people from Mexico had to migrate to the United States and then became a source of low-wage labor here and then finally demonized. But it had the effect of destroying indigenous corn growers and then having destroyed them, the same agribusiness, American agribusiness companies raised the price of corn, which led to a large amount of hunger, also stimulating the emigration out of Chiapas. So this is a phenomena, a trend, this monopoly trend that has profound impact, not only on corporations that compete with each other or countries that compete with each other, but on people. Yeah, you know, absolutely. When you have many small competitors, each of them forced by the discipline of competition to keep the price down close to what the cost of production is, none of these producers, these competitive producers, can get enough profits to be in a position to bribe or donate to political leadership. They just don't have the money. But when you have many become few, and many little ones become few monster corporations that have grown fat by absorbing all the losers in the competition, they have the kinds of profit, especially once they start jacking up the prices above cost because they're the only ones producing, they have enough money to shape the political leadership. They have the kind of millions to give to a candidate so that he or she wins the election. And the quid pro quo, the exchange is, go out there and capture for us the Mexican market for corn or capture the tin that we can import from Bolivia, which will give us an advantage over our Chinese competitor who has a harder time getting tin from Malaysia, and so on and so on. And you get that horrible monopoly colonialism connection or the monopoly imperialism connection that one of Marx's followers, the Russian Lenin, made a point of talking about that imperialism was itself, in his view, a stage of capitalism. And he meant by that, he was very clear about it, the monopoly stage. When you get these monopolies, they then now have the wealth concentrated in their few hands to shape the governments to become agents for their solving their problems, their marketing problems, their sourcing of raw materials problems, their labor problems, whatever they are. And then you begin to see what is so obvious here in the United States, the subservience of the political apparatus to literally 
a handful of mega corporations, even to the point, also obvious here in the United States, that the same individuals move back and forth. The people in the cabinets come from these mega corporations. When their period of government is over, they go back and become members of the board of directors of these same mega corporations. You have this congealing of a monopoly capitalist kind of imperial organization of the world that is like a monopoly, except it constantly oversteps its own limits and then destroys itself, which has been the history, as I say, of every monopoly in the past. Richard Wolf was our guest, as he is every Wednesday. We're starting this new series where we're going to be looking at basic concepts and categories in Marxism and Marxist economics. And of course, that means also politics. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, and he's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com, and that's spelled R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.